0: When last we met, we were discussing the justice of God, and I mentioned that God's justice and His love uh, really need to be seen as complementary attributes. And if you focus only on the justice of God or on the love of God, it's very easy to become out of balance. Um, But today's attribute is omnibenevolence, which is my combination word. It basically includes love, grace, mercy, things like that. Uh, We begin in Exodus 34. This is where God reveals himself to Moses. Exodus 34, starting verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so there you see the justice and love of God are held together as equally true aspects of God's character. He is so just that he will by no means clear the guilty, he will punish sin. Yet he is also so loving that he extends mercy and grace and is slow to anger. And this description in Exodus 34 is really at the center of how God wants us to understand himself. This is one of the most repeated phrases throughout the Old Testament. Here are a few other places. Numbers 14 verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Again, Psalm 86:15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Are you getting the picture there? Uh, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. So this is this idea is at um, the heart of God. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. However, as the psalmist there points out, his slowness to anger and his grace is not to be taken as tacit approval of sin. Just because God extends mercy for a time doesn't mean he doesn't care how we live, or that this mercy will extend indefinitely. As we said last week, it's really the uh, the slowness of god to judge and his his mercy and grace his patience that causes us to be so shocked uh, when his justice is displayed because we're so used to the normal course of action that god is just uh, going to patiently graciously wait for us uh, to get our act together and so when he actually does send judgment it comes as a, a shock to us god's love is especially seen in his forgiveness of the repentant uh, this is a theme we could trace throughout the Bible. I think I did this maybe a year and a half ago or something, before I was even pastoring. I preached a sermon on uh, basically tracing through Scripture where God for, forgives those who repent, even people that we wouldn't expect Him to, uh, wicked people like Ahab that are involved in all sorts of sin, and then they turn to God, and, and God forgives them. Um, so a great example of this is the book of Judges, where the Israelites sin. Right There's that seven, uh, seven times there's this cycle. Israel sins. Normally, it's idolatry. Uh, God sends judgment. They cry out to God. He rescues them, forgives them, and then you know, a few years later, they stumble back into sin. Uh, and yet, every, each time in that cycle, when they cry out in repentance, God stands ready to extend mercy. Another example of this predictable love of God is with the Ninevites. Uh, Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and preach to them that God was going to destroy the city for its evil. And at first, Jonah refuses because he hates the Ninevites, and he doesn't want them to be spared. He wants them to be judged. And in the end, after that trip in the fish, Jonah ends up going there. He preaches to them. The whole city repents. Uh, There's revival taking place. And during that time, Jonah chapter 4 says, "...but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry." And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Uh, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah knew that uh, God was, as he revealed himself in Exodus 34, abounding in love, slow to anger, uh, ready to forgive the repentant, and it's because of that character of God's love that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh to begin with. Uh, it's because he, he did not want them receiving God's grace. So love is definitional of God. Of course, we know First John 4.16, so we have come to know and to believe that the love, uh, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God is love. God's love is steadfast. We saw this already somewhat in the verses. We keep coming across that phrase, steadfast love, um, which is the English translator's attempt at a Hebrew word. Uh, it's escaping me right now. Uh, but hasad, uh, difficult to translate. It basically has the idea of, um, yes, love, but it's it's a deep type of love, sort of like agape, but it, it sort of uh, emphasizes the, commitment, I guess you would say, how God is loving even when we are not, when we are sinning, when we are straying from his uh, you know, commands and things, how God just keeps loving, that love is steadfast or ongoing. Uh, but God's love is constant. He doesn't fall in and out of love with his children. God's love is uh, involves commitment. Romans 8, verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present Nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, this is uh, question time. I'm going to put you all on the spot. Whenever I do this, there's always that awkward silence because nobody wants to answer right away. Uh, Does God love everyone? Malachi All of his human creation. Okay, yeah. Let's, let's, yeah, let's limit it to human beings. Does God love all human beings? Yes. Okay, we have one yes. Anybody want to challenge that? Catherine, you look like you want to challenge it. You would say no. Okay. You want to expound or No. Uh huh. In fact, I'm not sure what text you're referring to, but there are even some texts that says he hates, which we'll look at in a second. All right, Jacob, have I loved you, I've hated. Okay. Um, now, normally when I ask a question like that, I don't like asking questions and then telling people they gave the wrong answer. So typically if I ask a vague question like that, it's because no matter what answer you give, I'm going to agree with it. Um, so my answer to that is yes and no. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but I just want to get you thinking, does God love everyone? What do we do with those passages in scripture that says he hated somebody? Um, and some people try to make that out. Well, it's just comparison. Uh, okay. But there's definitely some texts that don't look like comparisons where God just says, I I hate all evildoers, right? What, What do you do with that? Um, what do we do with the doctrine of hell? Uh, We'll get, to that. we'll get to all of that in a minute. But we're going to look first at uh, various ways that the Bible talks about the love of God, categories of His love. And I think this will help to answer the question, like, does God love everyone? Does God love everyone equally? Maybe that's a better way of phrasing the question. Um, and all of these, I'm going to give you four points under this. These come from Don Carson's uh, very helpful book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, uh, where he kind of explores some of these subjects. Very short, easy-to-read book uh, by Don Carson. Number one. First category of God's love, unique intra-Trinitarian love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, John three, verse thirty five, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John fourteen, thirty-one, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, Jesus speaking. Uh, and then John 17, 23, is where Jesus is praying to the Father, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from the foundation of the world. Um, So God's love did not begin in creation. He was loving before any other being existed because God has always existed as a plurality in unity. We're going to discuss that more in a couple of weeks. I've been trying, uh, notice my restraint, trying to not get to the Trinity yet, because we're going to talk about that more fully in a couple of weeks. But so many of these attributes of God are hard to discuss without dabbling a little bit in there. Um, So the first way that God's love is seen is in the unique intra-Trinitarian love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is important because... um, if you de- One of the problems with denying the Trinity or denying even the eternality of the Trinity is that it, it leads to basically some of God's attributes did not exist prior to creation, if you hold that view. right? How could God be loving if he's the only being around? <laughs> um, but when you understand God has always existed in relationship because of the Trinity, because there are three distinct persons— um, that would explain how a lot of those attributes existed prior to any other being being created. But again, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Number two. So there's the love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Then number two, God's providential love over all he has made. And here, I I don't know, I might quibble with Carson's wording there and say his providential care makes a little bit more sense to me. But this is referring to um, basically the way that God uh, lovingly Looks over all of creation. So Matthew 6:26, Jesus says, "Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they?" Of course, we see that right now as God is watering uh, the plants around us today. Uh, verse 28: Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the valleys, uh, the <laughs> lilies of the field. How they grow? They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so God, uh, God feeds the birds. God clothes uh, the lilies. Um, Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. So there's a sense in which God loves everything he's created. Um, He cares for everyone in that he provides for them. Even God-haters are given uh, the grace of life, and they receive enjoyment in many of the same things that we do. And so there's a sense in which God's providential love is over all of creation. Number three, and here's where it gets a little bit tricky, um, God's salvific stance towards a fallen world is the third category of love uh, that Carson gives. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God loves the world in the sense that he died on the cross and invites all to repent and be saved. And again, this is where things get a little bit tricky because God's love of the world is not absolute. Uh, We know... That love for fallen humanity is why Jesus came to die. However, we have to reconcile this love of humans with other statements of God's hatred of certain people. And at this point, uh, somebody will come along and say, Well, God loves everyone, uh, but he hates their sin. And so there's, you know, it's a love the sinner, hate the sin thing. You've probably heard that before. Um, I don't think that's accurate. It sounds great, but it's just not what Scripture says. Uh, Many times scripture explicitly teaches that God hated someone or a group of people, not just the things that they did. Uh, Proverbs 6 verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord. Among brothers, You see how in that list, it's not just sins that are specified as abominable to God, but it's also people. I mean, at the end, there's the clearest, the one who sows discord. It's not just God hates the sowing of discord, but he hates the one who does it. Uh, Hosea 9.15, "...every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels." Uh, Psalm 5 verse 4 For you are not a god who delights in wickedness evil may not dwell with you the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all evil doers you destroy those who speak lies the lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man uh, Psalm 11 verse 4 the lord is in his holy temple the lord's throne is in heaven his eyes see his eyelids test the children of man the lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulphur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So, there, God does love the world so much that He sent Christ to die. Yet He hates sinners so much that one day they will face His wrath in hell. Um, and just one thing to point out there with the you know love the sinner, hate the sin thing: sins are not punished in hell. Sinners are. Right? People are the objects of God's wrath. In hell, they are under his judgment. So, yes, there is a sense in which we can say God loves everyone in common grace, and that's Category 2, right? The providential care, the rain falls in the just and the unjust. Um, God, provide, I mean, God could strike dead everybody that's headed for hell today, but he doesn't. You know, So that's an extension of grace and mercy that none of us deserve. Um, but we do need to distinguish between the salvific love that is uh, reserved for those who are in Christ as opposed to those who are under his wrath, which leads to the last category that Scripture speaks of with respect to God's love. Number four, God's predict- particular effective selecting love towards his elect. Um, this is first seen really with the nation of Israel. right In the Old Testament, uh, God chooses to set his love on the nation of Israel and not any other nation. Um, and the the reason, the only text that I know of where God sort of explains why is Deuteronomy 7, and he doesn't really explain why. Uh, starting in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And then here comes the reason. Okay, so it's not because of your strength or because of how many of you there are, because you're just a a little nation. Verse 8, here's the reason. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God set his love on you? Because God loved you. He doesn't explain why. He just says, I chose you and I chose to set my love on you in particular. So that's the nation of Israel. Um, Ephesians 1 speaks very similar about us who have been uh, saved. Starting verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, for in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight. So this is the same electing love that you know God chooses to set his love on Israel, in the same way God chooses to set his love on his children. If you have repented and believed the gospel, it was because God loved you and chose to set his love upon you, uh, especially Romans 9, verse 13. uh, The text alluded to just a minute ago, as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the mercy and grace of God are actions that he takes freely. God is never required to be merciful or gracious. The moment that we think God owes us grace or mercy, we are no longer thinking about grace or mercy. Our minds tend to trip there so that we confuse mercy and grace with justice. Uh, Justice may be owed. But mercy and grace are always voluntary. And so as we look back on these four categories of God's love, we don't want to absolutize uh, any one of these ways we're talking about God's love, as if every time love is mentioned in Scripture, uh, it's just this one thing. It is spoken of in different ways and in different lights. God's love is not sentimental or warm feelings. Uh, Rather, it refers to how he tenderly seeks the good of his creatures. And where can that ultimately be found? But in God Himself. And so in His love God gives Himself. In His love He draws us away from ourselves into Him. And as He makes us like Himself, we find that we love Him and love others. First John four ten. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the love of God becomes the motivation for our love. We were loved undeservedly, and so we ought to love others even when they don't deserve it. Um, this makes the love of God one of the it's communicable attributes. I know I haven't used those words. We talked about the attributes of God because I don't typically just throw jargon at you. Um, but in theology, they distinguish between the incommunicable and the communicable attributes. Um, if you've you heard of a communicable disease, right? that's one that's contagious. And so a communicable attribute is an attribute of God that we can catch, if you will. The incommunicable attributes would be things like God's you know, omnipresence. Well, we can't do that. Um, but there are certain attributes that God has, yes, to a more full and perfect extent, but we are called to walk in as well. And this would be one of them. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 32. Uh, this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible. Just remember the numbers are not inspired. Somebody put them there, and sometimes they made good decisions, sometimes they didn't. Uh, this is kind of a poor one. Ephesians 4.32, uh, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so we are to imitate the love of God. Ephesians 5.1 tells us, be imitators of God, and that's set in the context of, of the love that God has for us. When we love, we are acting like our Father. And not only is this love a a possibility for us, it's an expectation. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In fact, this is the way, the primary way Jesus said Uh, that people would recognize us to be Christians. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I want to close by asking, what does it mean that God loves us? Um, What do we mean by that? And In particular, those of us who are Christians. Again, we've distinguished between different ways that God loves. Right? God loves everybody in one sense, but he loves those who are his children in a different sense. Um, So speaking specifically of the love of God for those of us in Christ, uh, what does that mean for us? Practice. Does that just mean God has warm feelings toward us? Um, What all is involved there? In other words, how can we see his love? How is his love demonstrated uh, towards us? Number one, in the cross where Jesus died in our place. This would be, of course, the, the one that maybe comes to mind instantly. Of course, God loves us. His love was demonstrated when he died on our behalf. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the love of God is seen first in the cross. Number two, in entering into a lifelong relationship with us, right? Uh, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to spare us from, from hell and leave us alone, but then he also desires a lifelong, eternal covenant relationship with us. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so God's love is seen in his forgiveness of us in his death on our behalf, but also in the fact that he desires to be with us eternally. Number three, in the blessings that he gives us now in this life. God's love is seen in the blessings that he gives us now. Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 Timothy 6:17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, un- on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And again, there is a sense in which um, that blessing of God is part of his common grace toward all people, not just his children. Uh, right? Many people experience the joys and pleasures of this life that are, are enemies of God, and yet God uh, loves them in that sense. Number four, God's love is seen in His delighting over us. Zephaniah 3:17, "The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. All believers are objects of God's delight. And I think that's an important point, that God's love doesn't just mean He does good stuff for us, and He died for us, and He gives us eternal life. Yes, that's all true. But there is an emotional component to God's love. He actually loves us. (laughs) He actually likes us. He actually delights in us. Uh, He finds pleasure in His children. Right? We know Revelation says, for His pleasure we were created. And so God desires a relationship with us. He delights over us. Number five, God's love is seen in seeking our ultimate good. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And here I'll quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He writes, love wills the good of all and never wills harm or evil to any. This explains the words of the Apostle John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Fear is the painful emotion that arises at the thought that we may be harmed or made to suffer. This fear persists while we are subject to the will of someone who does not desire our well-being. The moment we come under the protection of one of goodwill, fear is cast out. And then he gives the illustration, a child lost in a crowded store is full of fear because it sees the strangers around it as enemies. In its mother's arms, a moment later, all the terror subsides. The known goodwill of the mother casts out fear. So God's love is seen in seeking our ultimate good. And then number six, and this is one you probably didn't expect me to say, uh, but God's love is seen in disciplining us. Hebrews chapter 12, starting verse 5. Have you forgotten? fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so God's discipline, um, as hard as it is sometimes to accept, is an expression of his love for us. And we see at the end there, of course, we can all resonate with that. All discipline in the moment seems painful and not uh, good. But the promise of God to his children is that discipline is for our good, Uh, that we would be holy, that we would be like him, that we would grow uh, through God's loving discipline of us. All right, we do have a few minutes left. If you have any questions or further comments, I have a feeling I know where this discussion's going to go, and that's OK. Um uh, But I have already Go ahead. the direction that you would go is from mm-hmm. the about God's world, and also from the portion of the scripture that talks about God's name. Um, I think the important thing that I was trying to distinguish is between the love of God for his children. There is definitely a different sense in which God loves his children than than the rest of the world. And it, we can explain, understand that as uh, those of you who are parents, of course, you, yeah, you may love everybody, but you love your kids in a different way, in a more full, rich sense. And so um, I think the same is true of God. Now, as it comes to, yes... Prior to our salvation, we are enemies of God. Of course, we know that in the Scripture. We are rebellious to God and so forth. But there is a sense in which God's love has been placed on us before the foundation of the world, before we ever repented. Um, so I, basically the point I was trying to distinguish there is between um, that, that God has a special, unique love that he has placed on his children. And as he has set his love, and Israel is the illustration, I think, of that. Um, that God's love was set specially on the children of Israel in a unique sense. So I think we're saying the same thing. I don't think we're disagreeing there. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we're talking about two different types of love. One of the problems is love is such a vague word. You know, we use it for our favorite sandwich as well as our wife. It's just a stupid word. But, um, yes, God loves Jacob in the sense that he chose him, right? He chose Jacob. He chose the younger over the elder brother. Um, So that's speaking of category four, the selecting particular love towards Jacob, right? Um, But is there a sense in which God also loved Esau? Well, of course. God was gracious to Esau. He was merciful to him. Esau didn't die the first time he sinned. Like He still experienced the common grace of God towards all of us. So that's what I'm saying. We're talking about two really different categories of love. That Esau, well, I, Esau was a very sinful man uh, who really despised God as far as we can see in every place in the Old Testament. Right, but again... All of us are sinful. It's not to say, right, this is maybe an important thing to distinguish. It's not to say God loves, uh, God's selecting love is based on our actions. No, no, no. <laughs> the reason that God sets his love on us is, like we saw in Deuteronomy 7, because God loves us. There is no re- there's nothing in ourselves that merits God's love. And so, yes, you can make the argument Jacob was just as bad as Esau. Um, and really, that's, that's not the point. That's, that's where Romans 9 comes in, where Paul says, Jacob was chosen while the two were still in the womb, before one had done good or evil, God God chose Jacob. And so it has nothing to do with Jacob's good actions or good moral character. Um, that is why we call it the particular selecting love of God's elect, which in this case was Jacob. Yeah, I think... I think hatred, in that sense, um, it's actually a different word in Hebrew, and it seems to be more of a comparison um, in that particular text. Now, the other texts we brought up are different, um, but the Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, is sort of like when Jesus says, um, "I'm trying to think of the exact wording. Unless you uh, hate your father, your your you know wife, children, mother, whatever, you can't be my disciple, right? It's not saying literally you need to hate your family. It's a comparative. Your love for me." should be your devotion to me, should supersede any other human relationship. And so it's it's a similar word like that. It's a comparison, I think, there. So good questions, though. Uh, I didn't think we'd be talking about God's hatred as much as the subject of God's love here, but that's okay. Any other questions? We've got a couple more minutes, or we can just close early. Okay. Oh, Deborah? Uh, the so- Z- salvific love, yeah. yes. Um I'm trying to think of how that was exactly worded. Number 3, God's salvific stance towards a fallen world. So there um that's not my word that's Carson's. He's basically saying uh the offer of salvation is given to the world. Right? So in John 3:16 there's no distinction made. And this is where it's it's hard to comprehend. There's no distinction made between the elect and the non-elect in John 3:16 for instance just as he dies for the whole world, the cosmos. Um, so there is a salvific offer, and, and this is where, I don't want to get into Calvinism too much, this is where I would differ with the limited atonement view um, that Christ only died for those who eventually would be saved. It makes sense logically, but I don't think, I think there's too many verses in the Bible that seem to say the opposite, that that he died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So yes, there's a sense in which Uh, Christ's death on the cross uh, paid for all sins of humanity, and the offer of grace is extended to all. Now, we don't all accept it, obviously, and those who accept it, paradoxically, Ephesians says, do so because they were chosen by God. And so it's hard to reconcile all this together. I don't pretend to have it all figured out. But um, the salvific love he's referring to there is the fact that Jesus died on the cross and the offer of grace is given to all humanity. So that's, that's his, uh, his definition there.